So it's tyranny today. What Russia and Ukraine mean for China, Taiwan, and the rest of the world. Thanks everybody for joining us. And uh, Thomas, we've got a lot to talk about today. Um, I want to talk about one of the things that's been really dominant in the news, and that's what I'm going to call Team Ukraine. You know, who's supporting Ukraine, who says they're supporting Ukraine, but they're not really following through with their own promises. And then, you know, who's not clearly not on Team Ukraine, who is actually supporting Russia and and. Let's talk about some of those players and why they're important. And, and let me open the floor to you to take it from there. Sure. So in any analysis of this sort, you, we have you know three levels of analysis, finding out what people do, what people say, and what people think. Uh, tragically, we never know the last one, what people actually think, because they may think one thing and say another, think one thing and do another. So we down to what they say and what they do. And I think or the war, the kinetic war is right now, uh, I think uh, it's more important what people do rather than what they say. Uh, and here you have a whole panoply of different um, reactions to what's going on in the ground. Uh, some of them are related to decision-making process, some of them to logistics, some of them to training, uh, some of them to maybe political ill will. So, I want to just take one symbolic, uh, sort of a, a prototypical case and three very different approaches. Uh, the approach which is, let's do as much as possible quickly, and I explain why. The other one, which is between, you know, let's say a lot of good things and, you know, put a process in place and it takes a long time. And we're not so sure Ukraine has this time, but that's the nature of uh, functioning for the second prototypical case. And the third one is uh, we're not interested in helping and we have our own reasons. In the first case, the example is the UK. In the second case, the example famously or infamously is Germany. And the third one is Hungary. So just I'll give these three examples so that we're not speaking entirely completely in, in abstract terms. Yeah, and you know what, before you go on, let me, because people are still joining, let me kind of recap what mm. we're doing here. Um, we're talking about essentially what I'm calling Team Ukraine. You know, what are the countries that are on the team? They're saying the right things, they're doing the right things, they're keeping their promises. Then there's another group of countries that are saying the right things or alluding to the right things, but they're really not following through on what they've promised. And then there's a third team, they're not part of the team at all. They're actually probably more appropriate called Team Russia. So we're gonna discern which countries fit into which category and why that's important to understand. So go ahead and take it from there. Interestingly, Team Russia is on paper, you wouldn't see them as Team Russia, right? Because they're members of NATO, they're members of European Union, and yet they act as if they were working yes. for the other team. So let me come back just to the first prototypical case. This is we're doing a lot and speaking maybe last, but we're doing. And of course, UK here is a strong ally of uh, the United States and Eastern Europeans who are also involved in this process. Uh, UK is uh, very active in the rollover process where by Eastern Europeans are sending Soviet era weapons to Ukraine and are replaced uh, by the Western weapons, in this case, uh, British weapons. And you have to ask yourself why, you know, why is UK so involved uh, barely a couple of years after exiting Europe? Um, and it is actually, uh, from, from the UK or transatlantic perspective, an opportunity for Great Britain to re-enter the space, the European space. 
that is to be in a, in a decisive mode. Uh, this is called in a military perspective offshore balancing. So there are uh, par excellence maritime power have always been, of course, not as important as they were 100 years ago. Um, but they in NATO, they represent an important source of maritime power, especially in North um, Eastern Atlantic, uh, which is potentially threatened by Russian imperialism as well. Hence, its commonality of interest with Scandinavia and North um, Northeastern Europe. Um, so, why why politically UK is doing this? Well, um, you know the UK has been trying to find itself a new role after exiting the European Union, and it just happens that the main two capitals in European Union and continental European Union um, are not playing exactly the same role as the UK, not as active supporting Ukraine. You know, remember Boris Johnson with his amazing coup of walking through Kreschatik in Kiev with, with Zelensky before many others did that. So uh, they're good at PR and they're trying to kind of carve out a niche for themselves simply because despite their engagement or re-engagement in the Pacific with AUKUS and with Australia and the United States, um, the UK simply doesn't have the power to, to actually project uh, its military prowess in Western Pacific in any decisive way. So as we move forward, uh, you know, through this war towards the conflict with China, it's important that, sorry, it's important that someone actually uh, covers the back here in, in Europe. And, and from the technical and military perspective, UK has been very active. Also a lot of uh, UK mercenaries um, are working or volunteers are working in Ukraine. So this is a, a, a simple example and much more complex is the example in the middle, the example of Germany. You have a disconnect between uh, the discourse and the actual activity. Less so now, but over two months that separated the famous speech of um, Olaf Scholz in Bundestag, that was, I think, on the 27th of, of February, 180 degrees turn and the Kartwende, uh, Zeitenwende, as they say, the change, complete change of times. And then nothing happened for almost two months until late April, when finally parliamentary uh, quarry was was issued uh, both from the side of the parliamentary um, head of the um, of of the international affairs uh, committee and also from the opposition. So and so things kind of started moving. And we know that Ukrainians, for example, are training on more complex uh, weapon systems in in Germany, um, especially the large howitzers 2000, which are critical for for Ukrainians. It just taking a lot of time. It's done in a German way, yes. you know, language issues there, but you know, there are very interesting uh, videos you can find about the simulators that, you know, look like the flight simulators and these people are actually learning and let's hope these, uh, th this weapon will be soon um, sent to Ukraine. You see, however, a disconnect within the coalition, you know, there are three different parties and the, the main party of the coalition, SPD, giving its strong past relations with, with Russia uh, and its responsibility for the energy policy and all the mistakes or co-responsibility for the mistakes in the, in, in the past has been slow moving, partly because Olaf Scholz's direct international affairs advisor is a guy from the left wing of SPD. Um, and so, you know, the communication has been very poor. So. Let's hope that actually Germany is starting to do the right thing rather than speaking the right thing because the governments first started, well, we don't have weapons to send. Then they said, oh, we have weapons, but they are not the correct weapons. Then they said, yes, we right. have correct weapons, but we don't have uh, parts 
you know, for maintenance and so on. Then they say, we do have parts, but we don't have, don't have ammunition, right? And then most recently, you know, the most crass excuse I saw is actually, you know, we cannot send any heavy weapons because NATO's members decided not to send heavy weapons to Ukraine. And no other country of NATO remembers that sort of pledge, right? Yes. So complete nonsense. So um, th this disconnect is very irritating. Of course, the public uh, opinion in Germany is very much pro in, in, in favor of sending uh, weapons. And Germany itself started, especially Robert Habeck, the vice chancellor, started to exert pressure on other countries. And the country which matters here is Switzerland. Switzerland is, um, you know, usually a producer of a lot of precision um elements starting with watches of course but it goes all the way to ammunition and and uh, armaments and denmark has been trying to send um, armored uh, cars to to ukraine called piranha which are made in switzerland and you know the the the, the way the global arms uh, trade works is that for this denmark needs um, uh, an agreement from switzerland from you know, the original factory and the federal council in Switzerland, that they are allowed to send it. And this is going to be, this is going to be treated over the next couple of hours in Switzerland under a lot of pressure from Germany to send it. And indeed to send ammunition to some of the anti-aircraft systems that could be sent from, uh, from Germany to, to, to Ukraine, but the ammunition is produced in Switzerland and because of the neutral um, you know, constitution in Switzerland, it's a, it's a complex process. So Switzerland is coming under pressure from you, including Germany. So who knows, maybe Germany is moving to camp one. So it leaves us with camp three. But before you go on, I, I want to ask a question about Germany. And that is, you know, as you said, we're seeing a little bit of a, uh, a turn on Germany's part, you know, towards doing what they've actually promised. What are the long-term repercussions, though, of their behavior to date? Is there are there going to be diplomatic consequences for them of having behaved the way they have to date? Here's here's a thought about it. You remember when Austin and Blinken, on their way back from Ukraine and Poland, stopped over in Ramstein and drummed up a common NATO uh, response? It was important that it happened in Ramstein. There is thinking in Washington D.C. that Germany has proven to be such an unreliable partner, not mm. really now, but over two decades of, you know, of building its energy dependence on Putin's Russia and its market dependence on China, that we cannot count on them. And, you know, maybe very soon, maybe over the next couple of weeks in summer, we'll hear something that will scare shit out of Mr. Putin, um, is that what, what a, a large part... What would that be? Well, it's something that's something that he doesn't want to see. That is permanent U.S. bases in Eastern Europe, not in Rammstein, but in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. Serious U.S. military presence in Poland, not on a you know rollover basis, uh, but on a permanent basis. It's very likely that Poland, rather than Germany, will become the bulwark of America's defense system in Europe. We're getting closer there. So that will be the big consequence for Germany for the first time since it, the Second World War. Is so let, let me let me ask a follow-up question. Is that a positive for Poland? I mean, economically it's a positive. From a security perspective, it's a positive. But what are the downsides to Poland if that happens? Well, you know, we we're going much sort of forward in, in the future, and we'll we'll need mm -hmm. to have another episode on that. Sooner or later, U.S. will not be able to provide 
uh, land-based military, so terrestrial army support in Europe. And it will be up to the other countries to develop the capacities. Poland first, and of course the Baltics, Finland has a pretty yeah. good uh, capacity yeah. and so on. So they will have to take care of this because of the coming conflict in Western Pacific. U.S. can provide intelligence, you know, you can provide, you know, uh, Air Force support. It can provide Navy support, very significant. Um, but these uh, assets are easy to move, relatively easy to move and fast to move. Uh, land army, that's not that easy. It takes time. Yes. And therefore, these countries will have to have capacity themselves rather than waiting on, you know, oh, Article 5th of NATO, um, you know, 1-800-USA, help. Right? No, yes. it doesn't. That's not going to work. So it's up to those countries to develop those capacities, and of course, uh, these the, the the intervening period between the current kinetic war and the next conflict will be that opportunity for them to do it with the support of the United States. Um, but in the case of a conflict in, in the Pacific, uh, I won't say there will be all capacities to avoid what happened to Ukraine, which was into the Western system. So. Uh, you know, I think where, where Germany and France are losing a little bit support in DCs with those recurrent calls to Mr. Putin, you know, this yeah. is th this is bad PR. This is very good PR for him. So supposedly these calls are supposed to be, you know, to show the uh, isolation of Russia. Uh, but, you know, Mr. Putin doesn't really listen. He usually just lectures people. Like, imagine if Winston Churchill in you know 1940 1941 would just call and uh, so oh hello adolf how are you today how are you doing and adolf will be like wir müssen die rüden ausrotten jetzt auf der stelle sofort and 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 winston will be like oh adolf i am afraid you're under stress let me call you back tomorrow right this is what's happening right now yes macron is calling you know calling calling putin is like Bonjour, Vladimir Vladimirovich. Здравствуйте. Как жизнь? You know, are you happy about your war? What is this about? You know, this last call lasted 80 minutes. 80 minutes lecture by Putin. That's what he does. He doesn't listen. He lectures, threatening yes. them with you know, cutting off um, agriculture exports from the Baltic Sea to Africa so that Europe can be flooded with African immigrants. Um, unless, unless you take away the the uh you know the sanctions right and and then he's probably editing you know ukraine is not a country that's that's all he has to say the yes. good thing is however is that call the european union actually slapped an oil embargo on russia so yes you know so they they didn't listen either so what's the point right now of course russians are not willing to to negotiate but that oil embargo brings me to this third category, prototypical category, and Hung Hungary is a really good example of this. And Hungary has a complicated history, which unfortunately is coming to bite them and the rest of European Union and NATO. Um, it goes back, you know, 102 years to the um, Treaty of Trianon, which deprived Hungary, a post-Austria-Hungarian part of Hungary, of about 70% of the terrain with Hungarian-speaking population back then, right? Today, of course, you know, out of about 12 million of over 12 million Hungarian speakers, 9 million live in Hungary, but there are still two and a half million Hungarians living mostly in Romania and Vojvodina, Vojvodina of Serbia and mm -hmm. Slovakia and Ukraine 
in the area called Zakarpatia. So Mr. Orban has been using as a lot of right-wingers in Europe, the European Union's ideological leftist bent as a uh, rallying call to revise the consequences of the Trianon Treaty. He, for example, doesn't refer to his country as the Republic of Hungary, but as a Hungary of all Hungarians. So in 2004, there was a, a vote for the first time to give those people in other countries the right to vote within Hungary. Um, so why does this matter? Because Putin's role or Russia's role in Europe is to destabilize Europe and then patch things up and to become a stabilizer again. And they do it on a regional basis and now on a larger scale, right? Basically, that's the relevance of Russia for European Union. That destabilization plays into Orban's hands. He handsomely won the last election. Arguably, you know, the um, electoral campaign of the opposition was pretty messed up, but, you know, he, he, he won for whatever mm. we can say and has support among Hungarians. And he is quite openly anti-Zelensky. In, in this camp and actually mentioned this during his victory speech after after the election the this quibbling with quibbling with with ukraine is about precisely this part of hungarian speaking minority and a little bit of ukraine which used to be part of a pre-war czechoslovakia then mm -hmm. for a short period of time it was uh, connected by hungary and, and poland Poland then disappeared from the map and Stalin picked up this piece after the war as he picked up many other pieces. Um, and of course, you know, um, Fidesz party, the, the party in, in, in power in, in Hungary is uh, always trying to sort of drum up support that supposedly persecuted population of Hungarian speakers in Ukraine, which is far from true probably. System through Hungary to Ukraine, number one, and Hungary was trying to block the oil embargo as well, under the pretense right. that without Russian oil they would just collapse. Which is a lie. Why is it a lie? Hungary uh, last year imported about eighty um, thousand barrels per day of oil from Russia and about 35 from Croatia. Actually, it's an old pipeline uh, from the Adriatic called Adria. Its history goes back to 1964, but really started functioning in the 1990s. Um, and EU managed to actually boost about 30%, which will give additional 65 uh, for Hungary. It's really not a... Uh, you know, the argument behind this, uh, the so used to the Russian oil and so on, that's not true either. Germany decided to do just that, to switch over their largest refinery, which uses Russian oil into something else by the end of this year. So there was some, you know, heavy negotiation. We received this kind of slimmed down oil embargo, um, uh, which Hungary uh, apparently agreed to. Uh, with some loophole, they'll be able to import uh, Russian oil for a lot longer, as will Slovakia and Czech Republic. So, but anyway, there clearly are not in the Western camp. One has to ask, why doesn't NATO just threaten them with, you know, exclusion? And let's see how they how the population would um, would react to this.
So why doesn't NATO do that? I can't. I can't answer this at this moment. I don't know. I don't know what the. Uh, you know, I noticed that Mr. Orban actually um, announced an uh, state of emergency in, in in Hungary the last couple of days. So I don't know if there's something covered going on, or you know, what's the what's the game right now? I don't have really any 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 leaks or any information that would point to this. Um, you know, why did he do it? Is it because of the energy prices? <laughs> it's hard to say. I mean, it is a it is a landlocked country. It's a country that is clearly dependent on its neighbors. It's not just dependent on Russian oil. So it could be badly damaged if there was any any you know one of the reasons why Urban is playing this this game is that they lost access to structural funds. The structural funds are, um, you know, the, the largest part of the of the European European Union's budget in addition to agricultural funds, and they go into the Eastern European development before it used to be Portugal and poor parts of Spain, and before it was Greece, you know, all the East Germany, all the poorer parts of Europe which were integrated into the European Union received those funds. And Poland and Hungary, because of the problems of the rule of law, have been blocked from these, uh, uh, these payments. Interestingly enough, until this war, until the outbreak of this war, these two governments were actually great friends and you know representing each other's interests in in Brussels. That is sort of you can you can find some tradition in Polish-Hungarian cooperation throughout history. There's even this this saying, uh, which in Hungarian means Hungarian Pole brothers to be, or something like that. And you know, one of the greatest Polish kings was Hungarian. One of the hero Hungarian kings was Pole, a uh, Pole, and he died in a battle in Varna against the Turks. Then, since you know, 18th century, Hungarians participate in Polish uprisings, and Poles participate in, in the Hungarian Revolution in 19th century, and so on. A lot of support, even through uh, the Nazi times, when Hungary was allied with Germany, they didn't allow German army to cross Hungary into Poland, mm. right? So, um, so strong support, and also 1956 during the Russian invasion of Hungary, historically very strong bonds. Right now, the two countries are in completely opposite camps when it comes to the um, Ukrainian uh, conflicts. So I think if, if um, Orban had one friend, one ally in, in Europe, they've just lost him. Mm. In your opinion, I want to ask a question. I want to ask a question that one of our viewers asked Bonnie. She says, "Morally, a neutral country should not be manufacturing armament." This is going back to your conversation, I assume, about Switzerland. Uh, you have any thoughts on that? Right. So, and it's it's very, you know, the the the, the notion of neutrality means very different things. And you could go into a long conversation about it, how different it is. Switzerland versus reason, but on some other occasion, because you remember you're aim to be neutral. As a son of one of neutral yes. countries, I have to say that one way to be neutral is to be heavily armed because you don't have allies hmm. you cannot call 1-800-HELP-USA you cannot push the button on article 5 of NATO if you're neutral you have to arm yourself up to your teeth and beyond there's no other way so 
yes, of course, you can of course buy weapons from somewhere else. But by buying weapons from somewhere else, you will always pay this extra 30% margin on that, right? Number one. Number two, what's going on right now in the global weaponry market, not least because of China and Russia, is that there's just not enough stuff. You know, Ukrainians are beginning to grumble that there's just not enough ammunition. Mm. Not only not enough ammunition in their warehouses, not enough ammunition that's being that's being produced. You know, there's one factory in Czech Republic that runs, you know, around the clock producing ammunition for Ukraine. There's just not enough stuff. So if you're neutral, i.e. nobody will come to support you, you probably are better served by holding large stockpiles and being able to replenish those stockpiles when nobody helps you. Think about, mm. in this case, we spoke about Switzerland, like Switzerland during the Second World War. It was surrounded by Nazi Germany from the north, by Vichy, France from the west, by Mussolini's uh, Italy from the south, and by Austria, you know, Adolf Hitler's birthplace in the east. Yes. yes. No friends anywhere near there, right? So you prepare as, as well as you can. Uh, but, you know, production of armament is part of that process. This is, of course, training of the of the population, as I think Finland has shown and, and, and many others. So I think if we lived in a, you know, peaceful world, what you can you can make an argument maybe really a neutral country should not be exporting weapons and that's i think exactly what the problem in Bern is right now but in terms of a production for self-defense can we actually make that argument can we actually make an argument someone who's being you know bombed and and raped and, and looted should not have a right to self-defense with whatever tools she yes. or he may grab i cannot make that argument hmm. Well, well said. I want to ask you about one other thing today. You and I had a conversation off the off camera, obviously, about does Russia have an ideology? Mm. And, and if it does, what is it? Because understanding that for everyone to understand that is going to be really valuable because it helps you begin to understand what has happened in the past and what is possibly going to happen in the future? What's driving it? Yeah, so this is really an interesting conversation to have. And uh, I want to start basically looking at the last 20 years in Russia, what has developed as an ideology ideology for the common folk, for, for your Ivan in the street, right? Um, more so than the elite ideology, elite ideas about Russia, the world, and so on. And we can come back to this um, when we speak more about the future. But let's just focus on, on this ideological uh, question because it's an important question because for, for many years, the Western world was kind of relaxed thinking, you know, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, we no longer have an ideological rift with anybody, with Russia or with China. That is proving to be profoundly wrong. It's as wrong as the end of history. It's as wrong as the belief that somehow capital markets will bring democracy because magically states will reform because of capital markets. Yes. Uh, that of course doesn't happen and it will not happen. And the only good you know, outcome of the current crisis around the world is that people realize it. But Russia has developed a, an ideology, as I said, for a common folk um, that I would characterize as fascistic rather than fascist. Fascistic in a number of, of its dimensions. So, 
there is something to be said about the collapse of collective identity after 1991. 1991, the Soviet Union collapses. And you can say, well, at least, you know, Russia's independent now of Soviet Union. Well, not quite, right? Soviet Union was the extension of Russia's imperial project. Yes. Very extreme geographically, but it was just a continuation of imperial Russia's gains in late 18th and throughout the 19th century. To the point that if you actually listen to the Soviet, original Soviet uh, anthem, I think there was a version from 1944 and 1977, the version goes, or something like this. So the, the union of indestructible free republic, republics, uh, rallied by the great Russia, right? So it's the great Russia in the center and everybody else is the little sister nations. Mm. And so what's interesting about it is that if your empire collapses, how do you react to this? How does the population react to this? You know, that, that answer is important. And it was different in France, was different in UK, was different in the Netherlands, than in many of these cases of some dramatic events, often far away from Europe, because their empire empires were far away from Europe. Yes. Um, and Russia didn't find the right answer to it. And so this, they decided to feel humiliated by this. They decided. Humiliation is a decision at an individual level, at a collective level. They decided to feel humiliated, not unlike Germans after the Versailles Treaty of 1920, right? So uh, the humiliation of the collapse of the Soviet Union had to be replaced with something. The first, of course, the sense of self-victimhood. We are the victims of that. You know, Russians decided, unlike other nations which were part of the empire, which basically regained their independence or gained their independence, they yeah, decided that this is a disaster and therefore, you know, we have, you know, the community collapse, the slow uh, kind of, you know, rotting of the society, the fabric of the society. And so these are exactly the themes that fascists were using in the 20s and early 30s in Italy and, and, in, and in Germany. And so what do you do against that, right? First, you project to the past, and secondly, you project to the future. Because if you were doing something about present time, you would have to deal with real problems. So right. you project to the past, and this is where crypto history comes. Russians started developing crypto history. So there wasn't much history during the Soviet Union, so it had to be developed. And, uh, you know, what is crypto history? It's sort of magical thinking about history. Um, there is a view that, you know, Russians represent all the Slavs. And Slavs represent a group of Aryans who are coming from Indo-Europeans. Since Indo-Europeans could somewhat be identified, you know, somewhere in around Eastern Europe, Ural, and so on, the original sources of, of, of those languages. As we know, since 19th century, Northern Indian languages and Persian language are also Indo-European, so it goes way beyond Europe uh, geographically. And so crypto historians often try to kind of justify their supposed important, crucial central position in global history and geography by this very long pedigree going all the way back. And so there were Indo-Europeans, and I think Putin even went to some archaeological event, you know, speaking about, you know, how long Russia has been here for thousands of years. It doesn't matter it was in Russia. 
but yeah. you know it's it's you know you have very similar claims in china about you know separate chinese men separate from you know all of us who came from africa and so on and so then the second stage let me let me jump over the second stage come back to this the third stage is the slav thing so pan slavism was a theory was developed in the 19th century when most of the slavic nations were under a non-slavic um, rulers under Austria-Hungary, under Ottoman Turkey, under um, you know Prussia, German, uh, under Prussia, and so on. With one exception, there was a Russian Empire. So Russians themselves had their state, and so the ideas of pan-Slavism that developed in you know what is today Czech Republic and Slovakia, and actually led to Czechoslovakia and further south to Yugoslavia. So combining different Slavic nations into one. Um, it was very quickly picked up by the Russian Empire in the 19th century to promote the idea that Russia is somehow senior to all those sister mm. nations that we had in the Soviet Soviet anthem 100 years later. Uh, and therefore, it was very, you know, by, by nations such as, for example, Poland, which was very much against the idea of Pan-Slavism, uh, the identification was very equal. Pan-Slavism is just one of the vehicles of the, of the Russian Empire. And this has been dusted off uh, since the 1991. So we are all slabs and, you know, Moscow is this, this leading, you know, beacon of, of, of slab culture. And we derive, slabs derive themselves from Aryans. So this should ring the bell for anybody who remembers the Nazi ideology. So Aryans was this sort of mythical race. So Aryans, you know, are Aryanic, let's say part of Indo-European stock. These are the Persians, these are the, the Northern Indians, but in that, the ideology of the early 20th century. They were somewhere in the north, I don't know, Norway or somewhere. Mm -hmm. And we, the Germans, the Germanic folk, we actually derive from this superior white group versus all those dirty Jews and Slavs and everybody else. You know, that was a long pedigree itself. There was, um, there was first a French um, um, theoretician, Arthur de Gobineau, who developed these ideas. Then there was Houston Stewart Chamberlain, the German, Brit, German-American, and then there was Alfred Rosenberg, who was actually one of the uh, original ideologues of the Nazi party. And he actually developed this idea, you know, we are Aryans and, you know, let's start and measure noses to find out who's a real Aryan, who's not. And so this Aryan element is present in that ideology of, you know, us now trying to actually rally this Slav power, you know, energy, mass mobilization, um, you know, everybody else is an enemy. We, the Eurasian mass, we control it against those others, the others, not least the Anglo-Saxons. The Anglo-Saxons who are, you know, seafaring nations, very different from us. We are into community. We are into tradition. We are into faith and service. We're not into this, you know, innovation and trade and, and you know, rationalism and so on. That's not our stuff. We represent the traditional values. And, uh, you know, Looking back more recently, of course, you need to have cults that people can relate to more, more uh, directly, let's say through family history than some archaeological find in the Urals. And that's, of course, the cult of 1945 and the victory over Nazi Germany, right? So that's, 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 that's very present. And then there is this projection forward, you know, so what are we doing about it? Of course, mass mobilization is one thing, um, but it also means that there is at the end of this, almost an apocalyptic belief in the end of time and that 
we can mobilize force for its cathartic value. You know, the Nazis started using this by using violence against, you know, internal uh, enemies, right? The Jews first and the churches and so on to, 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 to a different degree. And then, of course, once they occupied other, other lands, um, mm. Russia has decided to, because it has really no opposition, you know, everybody has been poisoned and thrown into Turma, into jail in Russia. So right now it's time to actually project that, that energy, that militarized energy uh, to the outside. And Ukraine is, of course, the first, the first victim of that, of that projection. So I would, I would characterize it, therefore, because of all of those points that, you know, take us to different elements of the of, of fascistic ideologies of 100 years ago as fascistic. Now, you can say, well, but how exportable is that, right? Who's going to buy it outside Russia, right? And, of course, you look at it face value and say, nobody's going to buy it. But then, and I mentioned this last time, because of social media, you can target your marketing very well. And Russians proved, you know, twice in 2016 that they do it very well, even in such, to their culture, alien societies as the UK and the United States. Mm. So there are different threads from that from that core internal ideology that is projected to different societies in different parts of the world. And let me just move geographically slowly away from Russia, starting with Ukraine. So how do you rally Ukrainians to this Russian project? You rally Ukrainians through a sort of parochial view of religion. You may have noticed that Patriarch Kirill of Moscow, Patriarch of the Moscow Church, yes. has been not only sanctioning, blasting the troops, you know, supporting Putin. He's part of the of of, of the state um, uh, mechanism to generate more support for 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 this war, special operation. Um, th this has a history, and of course, the, the history of the Ukrainian Church is very long, and you know, you have. Part of a population in the West, which is which belongs to a Greek Catholic Church, which has Eastern rights but is under under Vatican, and then you have the Orthodox Church, which has always been very divided uh, between um, Ukrainian Church uh, and also part of the Church that is uh, subjected to Moscow Patriarchate, right? Mm. Moscow Moscow Patriarch, and that existed. Basically, since the since Ukraine's independence, a little bit before, you know, under Soviet system, of course, churches were persecuted. But this is this is an important link that Moscow patriarch uh, patriarchs oversight over part of the Ukrainian uh, Orthodox Church, an important element of Putin's theory that Ukraine is part of Russia. So it's part of our great civilizational project because again, you have this continuity, alleged continuity between Moscow and Kiev Rus. Mm. and maybe Halit's Rus further west, um, which is simply not true historically. But coming back to this church, and I would say that this was actually one of the reasons why Russia decided to make a move um, militarily, because they were running out of arguments for the hearts and minds. First, Zelensky switched off three TV stations that were pro-Russian, and his predecessor, Petro Poroshenko, managed to engineer a merger within several Ukrainian churches that was blessed by the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople. He's not as important as a pope in the Western church, but sort of more important than the patriarchs in, in, in Orthodox church. And therefore, many members of the Moscow patriarchate, parish by parish, decided to join this new Ukrainian church because of the conflict that has been going on since 2014. Mm. Almost 50% of Moscow patriarch shifted 
into Ukrainian church, it was a big victory of, of Petro Poroshenko. It didn't help him. He lost, still lost the election yes. against Zelensky. But um, a big achievement. And that really riled up Putin and the Kremlin very much because they lost that very important link that they had. They sent, you know, priests from Russia to monitor those votes at the local parish level to stop people from voting to join the Ukrainian church. Mm. Now, guess what? Because of Kirill's support for the war and not a word about the victims and, and, and the killings and the, and the terrorist attacks, rocket attacks on the cities, um, the Moscow Patriarchate church in Ukraine decided to leave last week. And so there is no Moscow Patriarchate left in Ukraine right now as we speak. Mm -hmm. But it was part of the big nationalistic project which comes with this, you know, clarity of divisions, clarity of, you know, sp supposedly spiritual guidance always to the glory of Moscow. Now, you can say, okay, well, that's that's specific to Ukraine. What about the rest of the world? If we move just yeah. slightly further west to Poland, you know, Orthodox Church is, is a small minority. It's going to be larger now with the number of Ukrainians who live there. But since the Second World War has been very, very, very marginal. Um, so what can Russian neo-fascistic ideology offer to Poles? Nationalism. Why is that? Because of the history of Ukraine. The geography of Ukraine is such that you know, in Putin's view, you know, why should Ukraine, why should peasants have their own country? These are our peasants. Why should they have their own country? Except maybe those several oblasts in the, several regions in the West. Why? Mm -hmm. Because it was part of Poland until the Second World War and a much larger part of Ukraine was uh, united with Poland for, for hundreds of years before. Um, so they've been dangling that bait to Polish right-wingers, look, guys, we're going to take almost all of Ukraine, but you can take Eastern Galicia, which mm -hmm. is Lviv, which is Tarnopil, which is Ivano-Frankovsk, and so on. Just, you can take this. And, you know, in the hope that, you know, right-wingers, like some lunatic right-wingers in Poland say, oh, bingo, yeah, let's have it. Let's, let's get these. Uh, you have to give credit to different Polish governments who are difficult to support otherwise <laughs> because of their nationalistic tendencies. They never bit. They never swallowed that bait. It was always pushed. And I mean, this comes back all the time in the media, in Russian media. There's this Vladimir Soloviev, you know, sort of, you know, trial balloon propaganda uh, program that comes back a lot. Uh, Narishkin, head of FIB, right, Federal Intelligence Service, he mentioned this about two weeks ago, the time for Poland to take over those, those regions. Of course, it's unlikely to happen. What's likely to happen, what's what's what really freaks Russians out big time is a potential um, union, economic, socioeconomic union between Poland and Ukraine. And um, Polish uh, president's visit to Ukraine and his speech at the parliament in Kiev points in that direction. And that is something that Russia has been trying to torpedo since Yeltsin. Every time that there is a very strong, strong it, ideologically, that would actually be in a sense, a complete refutation of what that would Russia be the end of that would be the end of the of Russia's imperial uh, project, especially if we have an upheaval in Belarus and Belarus joins it. So it would kind of recreate the union that existed of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. We're not there yet, but it's interesting that you know this nationalism is also used 
as a, as a sort of you know a, a, a toxin um, in other parts of the world. So what about what about further west? So if we look to you know Germany and and France, which never had a, even you know a, a border of Ukraine. So what can you offer to them? Well, there is an element which I mentioned uh, in this neo-fascistic ideology about um, the respective role of us, you know, the pure Eurasian nation and those bad Anglo-Saxons who rule the seas. And you, my friends in Berlin and Paris, you're not part of that seafaring power. You're also in Eurasia. So let's just get together and decide for everybody else what we want. And you don't have to go far back. 2003, beginning of the Iraqi war, who was sitting in opposition to Iraqi war? Chirac, Schroeder, and Putin, right? The three, the, the great trinity, great anti-Anglo-Saxon trinity. And in both countries, Germany and France, anti-Americanism or anti-Anglo-Saxonism um, has a long history. There's a long history. Germany, of course, you know, good example is the last world wars. But even in France, you know, if you ever find... If you ever find uh, recordings of the of the Vichy propaganda, and if you understand French, you'll be surprised um, what they concocted. Basically, the idea was we have to protect our Franco-German unity that exists since the Franks, you know, since uh, Charlemagne, against those invaders, the Anglo-Saxon invaders who are alien to European continent. Yes. They should not be here. This was the German-French propaganda during the war, during the Vichy times. And, you know, I, sadly, I have to admit that since the uh, Second World War, you know, the French intellectual horizon has always been on the left, with some illustrious uh, exceptions, such as Raymond Aron, my own professor, Pierre Bienbaum. But honestly, uh, it's difficult to find an intellectual element on, on the right. So... Um, so that that is gonna that is gonna and you know the anti-Americanism of the left is something that's not gonna disappear with this conflict or with any other conflict. It's just basically embedded in their DNA. So that this is where you know Putin's anti-Americanism uh, uh, really has some um, some legroom in 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 France and in, in Germany. Also, and that's more kind of on the, at the elite level because you know the. L'homme de la rue will always watch American soap operas, even in, in the middle of Paris. So it's not it doesn't really matter that much. But let me just come back to you know the Joe Blow. So what's the, what's there in that ideology? Of course, elements of social conservatism. So in the presence of you know immigration and uh, you know deepened inclusion of ever smaller groups of people still allegedly persecuted and not fully empowered. That of course the left is opening up, you know, yet another group, yet another group, yet another group. You know, arguably a lot of people with more uh, conservative views feel left behind. And of course, here's you know Putin and his ideology, full of manhood, you know, full of you know very clear gender roles, um, you know, return to some past of you know clear, clear decision: who's white, who's not, who's who's uh, straight, who's not, and let's not just, you know, muddle things up and so on. That actually appeals to, to, to a part of the population there. What about beyond Europe? Well, beyond Europe, unfortunately, they can use the anti-colonial arguments mm -hmm. 
anti-colonial arguments for which maybe Russia doesn't have the infrastructure, but there are good friends in Beijing do. You know, Beijing is very present in the third world. It's a bigger lender now than the Paris Club. They have the megaphone. They yes. have the loudspeakers. They can serve Putin better than anybody else. And if you actually talk to, as I have friends in Latin America, you know, this conflict for them, it's just some other colonial thing, you know, that in Europe, Europeans are just, you know, they're fighting like First World War. It didn't really matter to us, right? Mm. In fact, we actually made a lot of money selling grain to Europe. Um, in, you know, India is a classic example of that. Here, this anti-colonial uh, narrative is very, very strong. You know, you open Indian media and you're going to hear all the time, oh, these are not, these are not you and uh, sanctions. These are really American sanctions. So we're not going to do anything about this because these are just American sanctions. It really is, you know, um, very fertile ground for that because of India's history. And therefore, we really have to be careful. We probably, you, know, you see it in the way the, the nations vote at the UN. Um, you know, there's a lot of abstentions there. Um, why? Because Russia makes an argument that Ukraine is not a nation, therefore this is not a neo-colonial war, which it is. Yeah. Whereas what others are trying to do by colonializing Ukraine against our historical interest, that's colonialism. Yes. yes. So yes. inverting the narrative, and unfortunately, because these people, you know, don't, you can't expect Malaysians to know the history of, you know, Arkansas better than you know the history of Malaysia, right? It's just not going to happen. Right, so North Carolina. I wanted to say, so it's 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 a it's really it's a it's a fairly easy game, and you know it's good to read some very good books from the '60s when you had some journalists traveling to Maoist China, and how Maoist China was projecting its ideology, Maoist ideology, to third world, the so-called non-aligned movement of which India and Yugoslavia were the shining examples. And it was very, very successful back then, the anti-Western, anti-colonial uh, Maoist narrative. So in a way, there is a continuity here. It's just there's more power on their side. They have more arguments. They have more arguments you know, to keep people in power in the third world countries whose poor governance and economic mismanagement only deepened during the COVID years. Yes. Uh, but unfortunately, in the past, you know, they would be subject to to uh, you know the sanction of uh, the election in many countries because of poor economic performance because they wouldn't be able to borrow any money from the World right. Bank without very clear governance guidelines. Today they're not dependent on on the World Bank. They can just get money from China without any strings attached, other than voting in the UN in favor of China and Russia. So yeah. all this big detour for China to explain that yes, the neo-colonial element. Um, is very, very important in that uh, narrative. So we almost just look at the entire globe and we forgot one important element, which of course, when you have ugly ideologies, is always there to rear its head and it's anti-Semitism. You might have remembered uh, Minister Lavrov's weird uh, statement about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, uh, when asked about why they call Ukrainians Nazis, if Zelensky is Jewish and so on, he said something and then he started like digging a hole under himself. You know, that the worst anti-Semites were Jews themselves, you know, how many of them, you know, were Nazis, whatever. It's just, it was so disgusting that I, I'm not sure I actually listened to the end of that. 
but he said that and then you say oh my god he misspoke uh -oh. after 30 years in the diplomatic service you don't misspeak <laughs> and we discussed it last time biden didn't misspeak yes, about taiwan you don't misspeak. there is a reason why lavrov said it no i don't know exactly what the exact audience of that was because big risk like he could have lost israel and as we know israel is actually harboring a lot of russian oligarchs so that that was risky but the anti-semitic elements are planted in many places by russian social media propaganda for a long time and so lavrov's statement reflects something much more profound i have a friend in western europe whose uh roots are in poland and i kept this uh, friendship because it's an interesting view to the other side the dark side mm -hmm. the the crypto history side the 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 extreme right-winger side something that you know i don't have in my immediate circle but it's actually interesting to 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 read some some of these uh, things so uh, for a long time he was drumming up that actually poland will cease to exist because jews are coming <laughs> and uh, there is a project called polin uh, which i think in hebrew means poland I think that's the name also of the beautiful museum of the yeah, history of, of, of Polish Jews in, in, in Warsaw. Anyway, so Putin's you know keyboard army was scaring right wingers there that actually they're gonna lose their their nation because the Jews are gonna relocate there and there's not gonna be Poland for Poles but just for, for Jews. By the way, something similar came in Ukraine. So in Ukraine, it's not Poland, it's uh, Chabad Lubavitch, okay? Because this is, you know, this is a very powerful Hasidic conservative um, um, organization, more powerful than other Hasidic organizations because it organizes outreach to non-conservative Jews as well and, you know, a lot of funding and so on. So um, very easy target for right-wingers. You know, this is it, spreading out, Freemasons, you know, Jews are everywhere. And so why Chabad Lubavitch? gonna organize new Israel in in Ukraine so great Orthodox um, Ukrainians patriotic Ukrainians rally with us Russians to protect you against the Jewish invasion mm -hmm. as in everything as in everything it's not completely that these themes are pulled out from the outer space okay there's always something so uh, the, the example of nationalism for for the Poles you know there is something there so yes these terrains used to be part of you know polish states so they could refer yes. to something with Chabad lubavitz the truth is that some of the uh, ukrainian oligarchs are members of Chabad lubavitz and they actually played a very important role not least mr not least mr kolomoisky in 2014 funding azov and other department other um, battalions um when you know there was no real ukrainian army right so yes. it's not in their interest to see moscow's oligarchs uh, rule Ukraine and they are very active they're very supportive of the of the Ukrainian state you know what happens with their wealth after the war when the country is reformed is a different matter but you know there are some people who are members of Chabad Lubavitz in Ukraine and so so those th this anti-semitic element was planted with whatever anti-semitic elements you find in Ukraine to also spread the Russian narrative so as you see in this panoply of different examples Orthodox, nationalistic, anti-American, conservative, neo-colonial, and anti-Semitic, that neo-fascism can actually push different buttons depending on the direction very successfully. And so I think 
you know, awaiting sort of one size fits all ideology as, you know, Soviet communism was, but then Mao's communism was different, right? And North Korean communism was yet different and so on. Um, that is that is lazy thinking. The, it, the world doesn't work like this. And we are unfortunately facing a very, very, uh, you know, large onslaught. It's difficult to, to, to manage. I think some of these narratives are, you know, losing their they're convincing power, given where we are and what we're watching on on our screens. And so, you know, there are views in Russia that the salami tactic was a lot more uh, successful than the open war because Russia could actually achieve a lot of its imperial, neo-imperial designs without doing this. But now it's the war and therefore, you know, the, the, the narratives, the Russians will continue to try and push them, not very successfully as we saw in the outcome of the French election. Yes. I think I think Chinese are more more active and more successful in the areas that geographically uh, matter to them. They're not currently active very much in Europe outside of Serbia. So it's really, um, you know, I would not underestimate the ideological element. So the element of you know trying to gain hearts and minds in the larger West and also beyond by by the Russian propaganda with many of these messages perfectly compatible with the with the neo-fascistic ideology that that reigns in the remilitarized thinking of the russian population i think we're going to have to leave it there that is really um it's kind of mind expanding everything you've said and beginning to put the pieces together in one's own view of what's happening in ukraine europe the west china i mean it's perfect for for our show, Tyranny Today.